I need your all's help with something, okay? I'm going to read you guys a quote, and I need you to tell me who said this, okay? Now, here's the deal. If you don't know, no shame. No shame, okay? Don't, don't worry about it. But I just I, I want to read this quote. If you know who it is, when I get to the end, then you can just go ahead and like, I'll be like, hey, you know who said this? And you, you can take a guess. You can shout it out. But here's the quote. Here's how we're going to get started today. Here's the quote. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever, or wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to out disgust. Who said that? Any clue? All right, somebody said it. All right, whose weekend is this? This is from letter, letter from Birmingham Jail in April of 1963. 60 years ago, Dr. King takes a look at the current status of the church, and this is what he says. This is what he writes. And my question is, how did it get so stuck? How did the church get so stuck in such a situation? Because, I mean, if you look throughout history, like he said, you know, oftentimes the church was at the forefront of bringing about great change to society, about making sure that the least of these were included, about making sure that everyone had a seat at the table. And how in the world did the church wind up in a place where it got so stuck? A few months before his death, they polled the nation. There was a national poll and said, okay, do you think that Dr. King is taking our country in the right direction? And 70% of the people responded, no. No, he's not. This was just a few months before his death. How did we go from 70% of the people thinking he was a bad influence to this is his whole weekend? Like, how does that change? And, 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 and it'd be one thing if it was like 70% of the world. You know, like the world's going to world. It's going to do what it does. But 70% of even like church-going people said he was taking us on the wrong path. How did it get so stuck? How does it, how do you wind up in a place like that? How do you wind up 
doing things like that and then putting Jesus' name on it. Because it's so weird. Throughout history, the last 2,000 years, you see this over and over. Like you saw it in Germany during World War II. There were churches that were like, no, what, what Germany's doing is, you know, it's absolutely okay. And then there were other Christians that were like, no, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer is like, no, this is absolutely not okay. You see this all throughout history where some people look and they read the Bible. I and mean, it's not like it's like 19 different versions of the Bible where in one of them Jesus is like, yeah, do whatever. And in other words, like, love your name. You know, it's like that people are reading the same Bible and coming to wildly different conclusions. How does that happen? And so what I want to do today in our time together is I want to look at this insanely crazy story in the book of Luke that I honestly think helps explain what's going on. And, and, if, and if we read it, we go through it, and we can determine exactly what it is Jesus is doing in this story, I think it's going to help, honestly, a lot of us, because here's the deal. No one wants to stay stuck. No one wants to be a stuck church. No one wants to be a church that's like, you know what? Looking back, we really screwed things up there, didn't we? You know, like you want to be the kind of church where it's like, no, we are the kind of church where everyone is welcome, where we go out of our way to love people, where things are going well for everyone. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be, or if you have a Bible app, I don't care, you know, whatever, whatever you like to do, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 22. And this is kind of a long story, so if you don't have one, that's fine. We'll put the words up on the screen. But in this really unusual story, I think we're going to find a lot of stuff about how do you get unstuck. So in Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 22, this is what it says. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Now, just so you guys have some context, the lake he's talking about, it was about a two-hour journey to sail from one side to the other. A little bit longer if you're rowing, but he's talking about a two-hour journey here. So let's set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. Once again, you got two hours, nothing to do, take a nap. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith, he asked his disciples, which, when you think about it, is a really unfair question. Because, like, what, do you, what were they supposed to do? Uh, hey, Jesus, I know that you were asleep and this massive storm came up, but we, we took care. Like, like, what do you mean, where's our faith? Like, that's not in their bag of tricks. So I, I, that's not really fair, Jesus. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the waters, and they obey him. So it's, it's not even like they had experience with this before. You know, it's not like, oh, yeah, this is a storm. Jesus is going to take care of it because we've seen him do it nine times. No, so this was the first time they'd seen him do it. And so Jesus asking, where's your faith? Seems kind of mean. Okay, so they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. You know, uh, uh, that's, like, that's exactly what we were all expecting, right? Yeah, okay, who's the first person to see? Yeah, for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. So this is a very good greeting that they're getting at the time. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice. I'm pretty sure the disciples were real glad they took this boat trip now. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. 
For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Now, once again, if you're thinking that this sounds unusual, remember, it was unusual back then, too. This is not, this is not what you call a typical Tuesday. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So all's well that ends well, I guess. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all of the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. End of story. This is weird. Like this is not normal. And if you're wondering, Jeremy, how does this talk tell us about how to get unstuck? I'm not connecting the dots. That's okay. Because this is a, just like everything about this is weird. Like, the town apparently was quite fine with the demon-possessed man running around naked and screaming. And then they get scared when he's normal and clothed. And they say, okay, Jesus, this is just too scary. This is weird. Would you please leave and go? You're freaking us out. Like, they were fine with the guy running around in the tombs and stuff like that. Like, yeah, yeah, that's just, you know, that's normal. You healing him, that's not normal. Can you please leave. And that's just not, like, this The story does not make sense. Like, that's not your typical lake boat trip, you know? Let's go across the lake. And, you know. and so, one of the things that you kind of have to realize, though, is what Jesus actually did here in this story. Jesus is on a mission. Jesus is saying there is someone that needs help, and we're not going to let anything stand against it. Jesus is telling his disciples, I want to show you guys something. And so when you view the story through the lens of Jesus on a mission, things start to click and things start to fall into place. When you view the idea that Jesus is going into a town and he lets 2,000 pigs die, it makes sense a little bit about why the town freaked out. I'm not a pig farmer, and so if some of you guys do know pig farming, correct me after the service, but apparently... A pig can sell from like somewhere between $250 to $500, depending on the type of pig it is and how valuable it is. So in this story, 2,000 pigs is roughly somewhere around half a million dollars worth of property that Jesus lets get destroyed for the sake of one person. And the town, who I imagine probably had a vested interest in pig farming, I mean, 2,000 of them are around for a reason, you know, 
sees this and they're like, oh, wow, uh, Jesus just wrecked half a million dollars for this one dude that nobody really likes. Uh, so maybe we should ask Jesus to leave before more things get crazy. Maybe if we ask Jesus to go away, our bank account will be a little bit better off here because this, this is not a good day for them. And what you often find is that when a community or when a church or when a person gets stuck, it's that they've decided to grab a hold of the status quo instead of Jesus. Churches that get stuck forget that God is on a rescue mission. Churches that get stuck forget that they're supposed to be on the move. The church is God's plan for bringing the good news of Jesus to the world. And oftentimes what happens is we fall so much more in love with the way things are than what we're supposed to be about. And when that happens, you get stuck. It just simply is. It's the way, like, if you go back throughout history and you're like, how did the church miss it there? How did the church miss it there? Or why did that group of people completely understand the times and what love looked like and that one didn't? It's so often that what we love most is right where we are as things are instead of remembering what things are supposed to be about, remembering what Jesus has commanded us to do. That town completely missed Jesus. They asked Jesus to leave. When you think about it, that's kind of like, that's, that's, that's a gutsy move there. Like, hey, Jesus, man who just cast out a bunch of demons, please go away. Like, that doesn't happen a lot in Scripture. Most of the time when Jesus shows up, what do you see? The crowds are rushing to him. They're like, would you please heal this person? Would you please heal that person? Would you please heal someone that, that, that I'm, but what was different in this story? Oh, it was someone that was on the outskirts, someone that was on the outside. The town was fine with someone suffering as long as they could keep doing exactly what they were doing. And when that got disrupted, Jesus had to go. And so what I want to kind of do today is I want to kind of just walk back through this story and pull out some stuff that we can use ourselves, okay? So, like, how do we get unstuck? The first thing that as I'm looking through this and I'm thinking about it is to get unstuck, expect obstacles that require asking Jesus for help. The very first thing, Jesus is like, hey, let's go across the lake. I'm going to take a nap while you guys row, which is a good deal if you're Jesus. And they're rowing, they're sailing, and what happens? Big storm comes up, and all of a sudden they're like, they're freaking out. And here's what I think. I used to read that story, and the weird part about sometimes about reading the Bible is you only read a snippet, and so you don't get the full context of what's going on. And before when I always heard the story about Jesus calming the waves and calming the storm, like the the application that I often heard was, well, there will be storms in your life, and if you just have enough faith, Jesus will calm them down. And it's like, I don't, that's not bad. But that's actually not what's actually happening here. Like, Jesus didn't tell them, oh, you guys have so little faith, because it's like, if you would have faithed harder, there wouldn't have been no storm. No, that's not what's happening. Jesus is telling them, hey, guys, why do you have so little faith? Do you think I'm going to let a storm stop us from being about the mission that we're on? See, the context I before I'd always understood it as is like faith harder, try harder, do more, and God will take away the storm. That's not what's happening at all. God's like, no, we're going to go rescue somebody, and we're not about to let a storm stop us. Like, where's your faith, guys? You think me, the son of God, is going to let a storm stop us? And if we're going to be about the Jesus mission as individuals, as a church, as a community, 
I'm pretty sure almost immediate, like you never know this, you start following God and the first thing that happens is something gets thrown in your path. Something gets thrown in your way. Like the world is going to do its best to keep you stuck, to keep you staying exactly where you are. And it is not wrong to have to say almost immediately, okay, Jesus, I really need your help right now. You know why? Because I'm not adept at stopping the storms, okay? That's, that's not my skill set. That's nobody's skill set. Jesus isn't telling them, man, why did, you, why did you have to ask for help? He's saying, no, 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 no. What did you think was going to happen? Do you think we were going to just go about this world and the devil was just going to be like, yeah, sure, go ahead, save people? No, we're going to be about the Jesus mission, and almost immediately we're going to have to ask for help. And if you, the people that stay stuck, the churches that stay stuck are the churches that let obstacles define what they do and don't do. It's like, oh, that was hard. Guess we shouldn't do it. You know, there's a, there's a way of interpreting every hard thing in the world as a sign that God's telling you no, instead of just a, as a way to say, God, I'm trusting you more. Like, God, I get it. This is tough. This is difficult. I'm going to have to trust you because I can't do it myself. And that's completely okay. Like, Jesus is not expecting you to control the weather, okay? That's not something anyone has ever been told to be like, yeah, why, why are you asking me for help? You, you got that one on your own. This is not tying your shoes, okay? This is controlling the weather. Jesus is quite okay to say, I've got that. The second thing, if we're going to get unstuck or if we're going to make sure we don't stay stuck, is that we've got to love Jesus and people more than stuff in the status quo, I have a friend, um, his name's Tim Selleck. Actually, I shouldn't say he's my friend. I've met him twice, and he told a story in a group I was in. So, uh, like, I know a guy who's a pastor. His name's Tim Selleck. Not Tom Selleck, but Tim Selleck. And he, um, he planted a church in uh, Orange County, uh, California. And he planted this church, and he'd been doing about, you know, 10, 15 years. And he goes to see his doctor because he's got high stress, high blood pressure, and stuff like that. And his doctor's like, you have no hobbies. You need to get a hobby, and you're going to be so much better off. And so the guy's, like, ultra competitive, so he gets into, like, competitive sailing uh, as for his hobby. And he's doing this. He's, he's sailing, and, you know, obviously, like, eventually it goes wrong, and he, he wrecks the boat, <laughs> and he gets rescued. And so he starts searching into, like, who does this? Who, you know, who rescues people? You know, obviously the Coast Guard, but who else? And so he, he's a kind of a nerd and a history buff. And he's telling me this story once about he's like, Apparently, back in New England, there used to be these things called rescue societies before there was like a, a formal Coast Guard. And in these rescue societies, they would get word that, you know, a ship had gotten stranded on the shoals or, you know, on the reef. And these group of people, most of them sailors themselves, you know, would band together. They would go out. They would rescue people off the shipwrecks, come back home have a big meal, eat together, celebrate, you know, hey, and then, you know, go back about their way until the next time there was an incident or a crisis. And being New England, a lot of times this would be in the winter, there'd be storms, you know, it's super cold, much like it was this morning when I woke up. And they would go out, they'd rescue people, rescue them from the cold, bring them back into the warmth, share a big meal. And over time, they just really started to like being around each other. It was cool to be a part of this rescue society. It was cool to go and do these things. In fact, they really liked the warmth. They really liked the friendship. They really liked eating meals together. And over time, they said, you know what? We can do all of this and not go out and rescue anybody. And come to find out, several of the more prominent yacht clubs in the New England area 
got their start as rescue societies and over time morphed into just simply yacht clubs. We like boating. We like each other. We like good food. Now, here's the deal. Got nothing against yacht clubs, okay? But if your, if your premise that you started with was we're a rescue society and the way you, where you end up is yacht club, something went wrong along the way. But it's easy to do that as a church. I like it. We like each other. We like eating together. I like it when it's warm inside. Do we really want to go out in the world and do hard things for people? I mean, because did they get themselves into that situation? Who was boating out in the middle of the winter? You know, maybe it's their fault. You know, and maybe it's Maybe we don't need to risk our lives and our stuff to go help someone else. Why don't we just stay here where it's nice and warm and it's safe and we can just simply enjoy each other's company and keep encouraging each other? Do we really need to go do something else? And it's so easy to fall into a pattern where it's us and what we start to no, like. Here's the deal. No one's going to say, I love my stuff more than I love Jesus. Like, no one in church is going to say that, but our actions end up telling it much louder than we ever could. And so, if we're going to get unstuck, we got to really say, are we really loving Jesus and people? And where in our calendar does it show that? Where in our day-to-day life does it actually show that? Because if we're not careful, what will end up happening is, like, Jesus might actually show up And he might completely wreck our status quo, and we end up asking him to leave. Oh, my goodness, Jesus, how could you do that? That was 500 grand. That was half a million dollars worth of stuff you just wrecked. Please go away. How does that happen? You love the stuff more than the people. And I'll say this because this might be a little bit confusing because took me a while to figure it out myself, and by that I think I'm 41 and I'm still figuring it out. There are two types of peace. There is a peace that is built on controlling your circumstances. If everything is calm around me, then I have peace. And then there's another type of peace that is separate from your circumstances, and it's built on the fact that Jesus and I love each other and we're good. And if you get those two types of peace confused— You'll spend your entire life trying to minimize disruptions. And most often what Jesus wants to do is a disruption. And so you'll be like, I'm, I'm just trying to pursue peace. I'm just like, I, I, you see this, actually, this is January. This is 15th. Was it the 15th? Today's 15th, okay. So this is about the time most of your New Year's resolutions have quit. So, okay, we're good. There's a, there's a, there's a thing that happens every January, though, where people are like, I oh, mean, I hope this year is better than the last one. I hope this year is better than the last one. And what they usually mean is, I hope my circumstances are better than they were last year. And that may or may not happen. I, I mean, you know, sometimes you do have a great year, and it is better than last. Sometimes you don't. But often, we spend so much time trying to control our circumstances thinking that's what's going to get us peace when it's a you know it's roll of the dice whether or not that's actually going to work but what we can always have is peace in Jesus what we can always have is that connection and even then when our circumstances up down good bad sideways we can have that peace even if our circumstances are going crazy that's why it says hold on to Jesus 
not the status quo. Third thing, remember your circumstances aren't holding you back. And here's what I mean by this. In that story, the man runs up to Jesus at the end, and he's like, Jesus, let me go with you. And Jesus is like, no, no, I want you to stay here and tell about what I did here. And for a lot of us, we think that, like, man, Jesus, it, my life would be so much more effective if I were somewhere else or if I could be doing something else. And the man had a point. Like, Jesus, hey, let me go with you. Let me go with you and the disciples. Clearly, this town doesn't like me that much anyway. And I've got an amazing story. You know, you, you feed some people, you heal some people, and I'll walk up there and be like, 2,000 demons came out of me. You know, like, it'll be great. We'll, we'll pack the rooms. We'll change it. And Jesus is like, nope, nope. I want you to stay exactly where you are in the town that you're in and just simply tell people what I did. And for so many of us, we, we think what's keeping us stuck is our circumstances. If I lived in a better town, if I had a better job, if my family were different, if I could do this, then God would really be able to do something in my life. And often what Jesus is simply telling us is, no, no, there's an amazing story for you right where you're at. And a lot of times we look at somebody else's story and we're like, I see how God is really using them and lives are being changed. And I can never do what that person does. And you're 100% right, you can't, because you're not that person. And God doesn't need you to be that person. Like, God has an amazing plan for you right here where you're at with the people you know in the town that you're in. in this. Now, does God ever call people away to go do something? I say, yeah, of course he does. But usually it starts right where you're at. What was the name of the man who had all of the demons cast out of him? Well, the name of the demons was Legion. What was the man's name? Do we know? What book did he go on to write? Do we, do we know? What, what lives did, did he impact? Like, you know, and that was the story of the little boy who grew up to be Abraham Lincoln. You know, like, no, like, no, we don't know anything more about this guy. But he was doing exactly what God, what Jesus asked him to do. And so many of the times we think that our effectiveness is about how viral we can go. And oftentimes it's okay. Like loving the people around you and it never becoming famous is completely okay. Not only is it okay, that's how it works normally. Like we read the New Testament and we're like, man, look at Paul. He goes all around the Mediterranean rim planting churches and doing all these things. And look at John, look at James. And then we find out like 300 years later, you know, like half the Roman Empire is Christian. The problem is we don't know anybody in those 200 years after like Paul. We don't know anybody's name. I mean, unless you're just like a church nerd like me and then you know like five names. And so like millions of people end up having their lives changed and no one knows their name and no one really knows what happened or what they did other than they loved people well in the places that they were in. It's so weird, like you're like, I sometimes think that there's this idea that the world changes through independently wealthy people who have no kids. Like, we're like, how does, how does, how does, how does Jesus, like, change the world? Well, he finds somebody who has tons of money and no responsibilities, and then that person just spends 24. No, the world changes through people who have nine to fives. The world changes through people who have, 
four or five kids or two or three kids. The world changes people who are working two part-time jobs because you know why? That's normal. That's the way it works. God doesn't need you to be anybody other than you. Your set of circumstances is perfectly designed for what God wants to do. You don't have to be anybody other than yourself. I love what Dallas Willard says about this. He says, God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithfully discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom in our life. Wherever you're at, God's good with it. He knows what you got. All right, let's talk about this one. To get unstuck, you have to practice your calling. All right, to get unstuck, you have to practice your calling. This story takes place in Luke chapter 8. Now, the next two chapters after chapter 8 are what? Chapter 9 and chapter 10. You guys got it. You guys are good. All right. Chapter 9, the headline in my Bible, I don't know what yours says, the, the very, th- like, verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends out the 12. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72. Right after this story, Jesus starts sending out teams of people to practice what they've seen. And basically from this point on in Luke forward, it's Jesus sending people out, bringing them back together, debriefing, teaching, training, and sending more people out. And look how he sends them out. Look how he sends them out. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all the demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, look how well prepared he sends them out. He told them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. People are really going to take us seriously, Jesus, if we show up like beggars, but okay. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Why does Jesus send them out with nothing? Like, no money, no bread. Like, Jesus, we're going to get hungry. Jesus, we're going to need stuff. Like, you're sending us out and you're giving us nothing. And we're supposed to roll into these towns and be like, let me tell you about the most powerful God in the world. Let me tell you about the most powerful being in the universe. Now, I know we look broke, but he's super powerful. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. But he's actually, Jesus actually knows exactly what he's doing here. When you have nothing, you have to depend upon what? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime someone asks you a question in church, you don't know what, just say Jesus. And just know what right. Yeah, like they have to learn to depend upon God to provide. And, and this is a key, this is a really important point. They can't come in acting like they got it all together and they know everything. Nobody wants to hear how well your life is and how if you would just be like me, your life would get better. Like, it's not fun. It's like, oh, good for you, you know? Yeah, but it's daddy's money, you know? What are you talking about? You know, like, you'll, you'll, you'll dismiss it some way. But when you walk in being like, hey, man, I'm needy too. In fact, I got no bread. Do you happen to have some bread? I would love to tell you about Jesus over a meal because I'm hungry. Or, hey, you roll into a town and you're like, can I stay with you? 
Like, I know we just met and all, and I promise I'm not creepy, but if I could sleep on your couch, I will tell you about somebody who's done amazing things for me. You're immediately building relationship when you do that. You're immediately establishing that, hey, the Jesus is the person that's got all the power. I'm just a normal person just like you. Jesus is sending out the 12, and then he sends out the 72, and he does with the exact same instructions, and he's telling people, hey, guys, I want you to go practice all these good things, but I want you to remember that it's built on relationship. Good news always travels at the speed of relationship. It always travels at the speed of relationship. And as you connect with people and as you build relationship with them, you're going to find out what's really life's all about. You're going to find out like, hey, I've got this, you've got that. As we share it and as we get to know each other, we're going to keep worshiping Jesus, and it's going to be amazing. But neither one of us is the power in this situation. The power is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I love what Henry now, how, he, how Henry Nouwen explains it. He does it so much better than me. He says this. We keep forgetting that we're being sent out two by two. We cannot bring good news on our own. We are called to proclaim the gospel together in community. You might have already discovered by your, or for yourself how radically different traveling alone is from traveling together. I have found over and over again how hard it is to be truly faithful to Jesus when I am alone. I need my brothers and sisters to pray with me, to speak with me about the spiritual task at hand, and to challenge me to stay pure in mind, heart, and body. But far more importantly, it is Jesus who heals, not I. Jesus who speaks words of truth, not I. Jesus who is Lord, not I. This is, made, this is very clearly made visible when we proclaim the redeeming power of God together. Indeed, whenever we minister together, it is easier for people to recognize that we do not come in our own name, but in the name of the Lord Jesus who sent us. But there is more. Ministry is not only a communal experience, it is also a mutual experience. Laying down your life means making your own faith and doubt, hope and despair, joy and sadness, courage and fear available to others as ways of getting in touch with the Lord of uh, life. We are not the healers. We are not the reconcilers. We are not the givers of life. We are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anyone we care for. The mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our own limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. Lastly, you need a circle. Now let me tell you why I say this. Why do you need a circle? Um, we have jobs. We have kids. We have responsibilities. We have busy lives. If we're going to practice this in any real substantial way, we got to have a team of people that we're doing this with. Now, when I say circle, I do not mean group. And you're like, I thought those were the same thing, Jeremy. You're confusing me. What are you talking about? Okay. We build circles differently here. Every circle has a network or a neighborhood to go and practice this with. We ask our circles to identify who are the people God has put in your life and what does it look like to invite them in. And in the same way Jesus sent out the 12 and in the same way Jesus sent out the 72, we say, hey, guys, we're going to band together, eight or nine of us, you know, six or seven of us, and we're going to practice doing this together. Because 
What you can't do realistically, and this is no fault of our own, this is just real life, is you can't have, well, on Sundays I go to church, on Tuesdays I have my group, and then i got to figure out another time to go and practice Jesus stuff. Like, it just doesn't happen if that. So we've, we've deliberately chosen to build our circles around the concept of an idea of teams of people practicing being Jesus in the world around them. And you're like, but, but I don't have it all figured out. Yeah, neither did the 12, neither did the 72. But Jesus, Jeremy, I don't have blah, blah, blah. Yeah, neither did they. They didn't have it. Jesus is like, yeah, you, you, get, you get no bread, you get no money, you get no extra clothes. You just go, point people back to Jesus, love them well, do what you can, and that's enough. And I'm giving you guys each other to practice with. See, if you're wondering, like, Jeremy, you started this message with Dr. King and, like, talking about how churches wind up in crazy, weird places like that. How does a circle prevent that? Well, here's what I know. Here's what I know. Most people will never make the really big, hard choice if you've not built up your muscles loving people in the easy ways or in the small ways. And one of the best things that we can do to not get stuck is to learn to love our neighbors and neighbors not just simply be a category, but it be actual names. Like, it's one thing to love the poor. It's another thing when there's like, oh, that's John or that's Susan. And it goes into a completely different realm. And for a lot of us, like, we're not going to make the, like, man, I could get fired for this, you know, taking this stand. We're not going to make that choice until we've learned to love people as they are, who they are. And it's like, here's the deal. I'm not pretending that this is going to be easy. I'm not pretending that when you go to meet your neighbors, you're not going to be like, yeah, they're kind of weird. You know, like, I don't think I would watch that show. Or I don't think I would listen to that music because it sucks. You know, like, like. You're going to meet people that do not honestly vibe with you that well. And learning how to love people like that makes it so much easier to be a church that's about something in the community. To make it a church that you're not like, like, I don't want to be like 60 years from now, someone reading a letter in some church service being like, yeah, that was Soma. They really missed the ball on that one. And uh, no, like, that's not what I want to be about. That's not what any of us want to be about. And the way we make sure that we don't stay stuck like that is you've got to practice loving people in the here and the now. And circles are our best way of doing it. Are circles the only way of doing that? No, of course not. But realistically, like I said, what are you going to do and where are you going to go? Because you got jobs, you got kids. you got to have something that your whole family can participate in and practice loving well. you got to have some sort of mechanism where you're like, you know what? It's, uh, it's February. We're throwing a big Valentine's party in my neighborhood, and we're inviting all of our neighbors. You know what? We're not expecting anything. We just want to build some relationships. Or it's March. We're going to do a March Madness party and just invite people over. Uh, you can invite me over to the March Madness one. Or, you know, it's the Super Bowl. It's the Super Bowl. We're going to have a Super Bowl party. Invite people. Like, we're going to do something where we're normally inviting people in, and together we're just going to practice. Once again, you don't have to be anybody you're not. You don't have to have anything you don't. You can just simply be real love people well, and we're going to see what happens. When Jesus left, how many followers did he have? If you don't know this, that's okay. But roughly how many? There was 12 disciples, but you know how big the church was at that time? Quote, unquote. Anybody know? Somebody said it. About 125 people. We are three times the size of the early church. The early church changed the world 
simply by loving people well with the power of the Holy Spirit. All we got to do is love people well with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's all it takes. You don't have to be anybody special. You don't have to have anything you don't already have. We're just going to group together. We're going to band together. We're going to love our neighbors well. We're going to love our networks well. We're going to love our city well. When we say we want to be the best friend our city's ever known, that's not just a cool tagline. That's our entire mission and strategy and purpose all rolled into one. Because we know there are hurting people out there. We know there are people that need friends. We know there are people that are being left out. And if we don't welcome them in, who will? The church is Jesus' plan for restoring a broken world. It's what we get to do. It's what we were made to do. What else would we do?